guys, uh, really good to see you all. Um, Katie's going to come up in a few moments time to, to read God's word, but I just wanted to share a little bit of sort of the reasoning uh, and the heart behind why uh, we're looking at, at the gospel over the next uh, couple of months. So in six sessions over the next, or six nights over the next couple of months, we're going to be considering Jesus, his birth. We're going to consider his life. We're going to consider his, his death, his resurrection, the fact that he ascended, he went back to heaven. And then our last night, we'll be looking at and focusing on his return, Jesus coming back. Uh, and, and really, this is the, the heart and the reason why we're doing that. And it's down to where we live in, in this world. And whether you might like it or not, Northern Ireland is actually quite a unique and wonderful place to live. And that, I can say that very confidently because of the amount of these buildings, churches, Christians, they're flipping everywhere, aren't they? You're probably sick of Christians, to be honest, that you can't really move for them. Um, and we really know so much about Christianity here. Uh, we have heard about it since we were no age, and we know really the gospel. We've heard it. Whether you here are Christian or not, I'm pretty sure you know what the gospel is, the good news. You've heard about Jesus. I'm sure you've struggled through some awkward nativity plays, and you know that Christians like to make a big deal of Easter as well. And I'm sure you know some Christians, which is fairly obvious as well. But there's a real problem that's married to those blessings, as good as it is to have loads of churches, to, to know stuff about Christianity, know the gospel, to have known of this person, Jesus, and even to believe in it. And that is that we become very familiar with it. We've heard it a million times before, and it sort of has this numbing effect on us. Maybe I could stretch that and say that it sometimes bores us. We switch off when someone sort of gets to the, the Jesus part or starts talking about the gospel. You think maybe that's for other people. You know, I have that squared away. That's all good. Maybe you think it's old news. You've heard it all before. So you sort of roll your eyes and think, well, you know, I know this. I've heard it. Okay, move on. Let's talk about something more important. Let's talk about the, the, the new social movement craze that we need to talk about. And that response can take place within any of us, whether we follow Jesus or not. We can rehearse the scene at Bethlehem, know all the stuff about the Good Samaritan story, Jesus died, rose, yeah, I've got it. But here's the thing, here's the crucial thing. Whether you're 12 years old or you're an absolute veteran like Gilly, you never outgrow the gospel. There's never a point in your life that you have it fully squared away. In fact, we need it every single day of our lives. That's the reason why we're going to take some time as C sort of hopefully comes back to normal and look at it. So let me ask a, a very simple question and answer internally, inside thoughts. What's the gospel? What is it? Someone to ask you, what is the gospel? Like, no, seriously, I, I'm being deadly serious. What, think to yourself, what is the gospel? We know the gospel means good news. So what is the good news? How would you answer that? I'd say for many of us, we sort of jump to answers like the gospel is that Jesus saves us from sins and that means I, I go to heaven. Or maybe that, that God welcomes us into his family and has a, a wonderful plan uh, for your life. And that's brilliant. Now, as glorious as those answers are, strictly speaking, that, that's not the gospel, but they are the benefits of believing in the gospel. 
understood correctly, the gospel is the proclamation of God's Son, Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's about who he is and what he has done. That is the gospel. And as a result of believing in who Jesus is and what he has done, then these glorious benefits that I just mentioned come about to be a reality. So as I said, we're going to take about six weeks over the next couple of months to look at, uh, look at Jesus. Who is Jesus? How did he live? What did he do? And what does he plan to do? And tonight we're going to consider how he came to earth. I'm going to ask um, Katie to come and read God's word to us. Thank you. Galatians 4, verses 1 to 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we may receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an earth through God. Hello again, me. Uh, before we jump into that, Katie, super, thank you very much for reading God's word. Let's pray really quickly. Ask God to help us. Father, we come before you in need of you as we look at this book, this book that we know is your book. Father, we need your help. So we ask that you would grant it through your spirit, that you would just put distractions away and that you'd help us to really attentively focus on the truth that's contained within your glorious word that is ever relevant and pertinent to our lives. We ask it not that we would just puff up our knowledge and become a little bit more informed, as important and as good as that is, but that we would be transformed, Lord, for those here tonight that aren't Christians, that they would come to saving faith in Jesus. For those who are Christians, that we would grow to love Jesus even more. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we're nearly there, guys. Only 104 days till the big day. What am I talking about? No answer? Okay, well, box it. No, I'm going to uh, Christmas Day, of course. Lively crowd here tonight, jeepers, though. Um, Christmas was ruined last year. It was just shocking, wasn't it? Couldn't leave the house. It was dark. It was miserable. There was a curfew. It was just awful. And for me, I've sort of already mentioned it, there was no Boxing Day football, which was absolutely terrible. Christmas really sucked. No thanks to lovely COVID. I'm pretty sure everyone was sick of looking at their family last Christmas. Maybe you possibly thought about doing a Matilda, and maybe you're on Facebook market, Marketplace searching new families in local area to see if maybe you could sort of swap families because you were absolutely sick of looking at yours over at that time. You couldn't do anything. It wasn't a great Christmas. But all being well, we'll have a return to some sort of normality this year. Now, I would hazard a guess that for most of us here in this room that we enjoy Christmas we love Christmas. It's a great time of year. It's filled with joy, presents, food, trips out, so on and so forth. But I do realize that maybe some of us here 
Christmas isn't all that. Sometimes Christmas, for many of us, can be a hard time. It can be painful. It's another reminder uh, of a loved one not present. Or sometimes Christmas can be the one time of the year when family arguments just rise and tension at home just seems to get the better of everyone. It can be difficult. But one thing that, that does not change in the midst of our varying experiences uh, at Christmas time is, is the story that forms Christmas. The story that forms the Christmas narrative. And this harkens back a little bit to my, my opening gambit I just shared with you is that we know all about the Christmas story. I'll just make that broad assumption very early, that I'm going to assume that you have heard of the, the nativity, that you have a fairly decent, basic, or maybe a well-versed understanding of Christmas and what it is, what happened, and so on. Jesus is born in a manger, surrounded by donkeys and cows, obviously, maybe not, who knows. Mary and Joseph are there, and some wise men show up at some point with the most irrelevant and useless baby gifts ever. But here's the problem again, is that we're so familiar with it. We're so familiar with it. And what we do often with uh, the Christmas story in our minds is that we, we, we treat it the same way we treat a certain Michael Bublé, a little bit of the bubbly at Christmas. First of December hits, uh, uh, um, Michael Bublé is your jam. You're all over his Spotify playlist. You're absolutely numero uno Bublé fan. He is on repeat. You're in love once again with his succulent notes. His sweet Canadian voice melts you away. You feel Christmassy all over again. If you're a female, you maybe just Google to see if he's still married, and then you realize he is married and has kids, and you're really disappointed by that. But you are Bublé's biggest fan. But Christmas Day comes, and Bublé is demoted. You forget all about the man. Twelve months later, and he's back on the playlist. You love him. You're his biggest fan. And the cycle goes on and on and on. Side note, Michael Bublé does have other, Christmas, uh, other songs that are not Christmas-related, but no one knows them. We do the same with the birth of Jesus. December swings round, and we love thinking about the nativity scene. We feel all sort of cute and warm and fuzzy about it. January hits, and it's back into the attic of our minds. The problem is that subconsciously, we sort of wedge the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus to Christmas to that time of year, to December. And therefore, what we're doing is that we're disconnecting it from the rest of, our, the, rest of the year, the rest of, of our lives, but also the rest of the, Christmas, uh, the Christian message. And tonight, instead of dealing with one of those classic Christmas passages that we find and we love in Matthew, or like, we're going to look at and hone in on two summary verses offered to us by the Apostle Paul in his letter to a bunch of Christians in a place called Galatia, which we know is modern-day Turkey. So let me read those verses. They're behind me. They're also in front of me as well. And let me read 4 and 5 of Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I wonder if you've ever had to do uh, or organize a surprise party for someone. 
Maybe you've been the recipient of a surprise party. Or maybe you have um, had the, the, the joy of receiving a little baby brother or a little baby sister into your family. Or maybe a niece or a nephew uh, has came into your wider family. And with both those sort of illustrations, there's a mixture of nerves and excitement connected to both, isn't there? Or if you can't relate to any of those, maybe you're of the, the simpler or pure kind. You can think back to those dreadful lockdown days when McDee's drive-thru wasn't even open. And then one glorious day, one glorious day, an amateur rally track was composed in Meadows Car Park, if you can remember. And after waiting, I'd say roughly about three months of absolutely no McDonald's, you were, you were reunited with your beloved McNuggets and everything was right in the world. You know, waiting is difficult, just isn't natural for any of us, I would say. And for the people of God of old that we read about in the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, they had to do a lot of waiting. A lot of it was a result of their sin and rebellion against God. But above all, they are waiting primarily for someone to come, for a rescuer to arrive. They knew that God had promised this and they believed and trusted in him. Didn't know exactly when and how, the finer details, but they still believed and they waited. Now, as we read in the, the Old Testament, God was, he wasn't far off. He was actively engaged with his people. He spoke to them. He had people in power and place. He uh, communicated them through their kings, judges, prophets, and so on and so forth. Though, as we turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament, so we turn from the last book in the Old Testament, which is Malachi, to, to the first, test, uh, first book in the New Testament, Matthew, subconsciously in our minds, we think that sort of like Malachi must have finished up writing at Friday at 5 p.m., and then Matthew takes up the reins on Monday morning, because we're just turning the page, aren't we? But nothing could be further from the truth. Between the close of the, the First Testament and the Second Testament, there's actually a gap of over 400 years. 400 years between the Old and New Testament. There's no prophetic voice. There's no direct communication from God. A lot has happened to God's people. Actually, not a lot of good things. They're now under the rule of the Romans now. It hasn't been a really good time. The Pharisees have came about, even though there's no mention of them in the Old Testament, and they are far from Jesus' mates, as we read in the Gospel. Things aren't great. And in the midst of all this, what does Paul say? Well, you can see it. This is a summary. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. What's he saying? Let's distill that. What's, what's the Apostle Paul saying to us? He's saying, at precisely the right, right time, Jesus arrives. Right on cue, just as the, the curtains draw back for the New Testament, Jesus is right there, ready to go front and center. But what does that actually mean? Well, a lot of people sort of devise some um, sort of reasons, um, which I won't, sort of cultural references. There was a universal language was sort of going around, Greek, and people sort of think that's what Paul's getting at. But I wonder, have you ever thought about this question? Why was Jesus born when he was born? Like why was Jesus born 2,000, nearly uh, two, uh, two, over 2,000 years ago? If God was looking to put his son on the main stage, surely he would have been, uh, it would have been a better idea to have waited a few years 
Maybe God should have waited for, you know, the print and press to, to roll around or for travel to become a little bit easier and enhanced so that he could travel through trains, boats, planes. Sorry, that would have been so much easier. Uh, what about the internet? Could maybe Jesus not have came about sort of 30 years ago and had the internet? Think how easy and so how accessible his message would have been. He would have went right across the world instantly. But Jesus comes at the, exactly the right time. Paul offers a summary statement because, and this is the reason why, this is the reason why he says at the fullness of time, is because of the point that he's been making in the book of Galatians. It's because the, the law, God's good commandments for his people, had actually accomplished everything that they had set out to achieve. One of the main points Paul is stressing to the, the Galatians, these bunch of Christians, is that the, the law of God, it really had like a, a twofold purpose. Read about this in chapter three. First of all, it, it actually condemns us, which isn't great, but actually in a roundabout way is quite good. It reminds us that we're far from perfect. And that's what rules do, don't they? And we get that. But it also serves as, as a guardian that it leads us to the promise of faith in God and what that can accomplish and achieve and what the benefit of that brings about. It leads us to something. See, as Paul makes abundantly clear as we read Galatians, which is very blunt, it's so, so blunt. Paul does not beat about the bush. Paul will say that, that we're enslaved by the law. And what he's saying is that we just can't keep it. We cannot keep the rules, the commandments of God, all of them. And what that does is it serves to actually humble us. It actually serves to lessen our view of how great and mighty that we sometimes think of ourselves. The law could only go so far, and now is the right time for Jesus. What happens at the fullness of time? I've already said, Paul tells us, God sent forth his son. Paul shares three clauses they reveal three really incredible, intrinsic aspects of who Jesus is. And we're going to take time to look at them. They're all contained in, in verse 4. The first one is, very simple, simply, God sent forth his son. At the fullness of time, God sent Jesus. Well, duh. Of course, we get that. We know it. This is sort of the, the familiarity coming again. We need to park here and actually reconsider this once again. This was the plan from eternity past. Before you breathed, before anyone breathed, this was the plan. Before the beginning of creation, that the Son would leave heaven and come to earth. Father, Son, spared all in agreement, the Trinity, that, when, uh, that what we have at Bethlehem, in that little cute little manger that we sort of uh, concoct in our minds, is quite literally the triune God sending himself. Jesus is the Father's special envoy from heaven down here to us in earth. And Jesus, in perfect obedience, he comes to earth and in so doing, comes literally to represent God because Jesus is God. Hebrews 1 and verse 2 says this, but in these last days, he, that is God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through him also he created the world. Previously, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, God had spoken through, through kings and prophets, but now finally in these last days, which is 
these days that we live in right now, he has spoken through his son. He has spoken through Jesus. And we're just so overly familiar with this. Often we just expect and we assume that of course God was going to create a way. Of course God, there's going to be a baby in the manger of Bethlehem. But we need to seriously just pause, just take those familiarities and marvel and rejoice. That God in his infinite wisdom and love for us, in his plan of redemption, that he takes matters into his own hands. Plans to, to purchase us back. In spite of who we are and our rebellious nature, in our eternity defining problem of, of sin, God comes he comes himself to our aid. God doesn't just, you know, throw down a book from heaven. He doesn't offer us a concept, some sort of way of, of living, some sort of philosophy. No, God actually gets his hands dirty. Jesus leaves absolute perfection. He sacrifices the, the splendor of heaven. He comes to the world he created, to the world that had turned its back on him. And he doesn't come to, to rule with an iron fist. But he comes actually in relative obscurity. And he arrives in the most vulnerable circumstance possible. As a baby to a virgin, unmarried teenager. In a foreign town with death threats hanging over his head immediately as he's born. That cause him to flee to a foreign land. This is the second clause. Born of a woman. Again, we may go, duh. We know, sure, we've just thought about that. Um, Mary was the, the mother of Jesus. This is, you know, basic stuff. It's like Sunday school stuff. We get that. So we sort of may ask the question, well, why does Paul say this? Why does he have to mention this, that Jesus was born of a woman? It's actually vitally important that, that Paul makes this, this reference. It's actually good to think of it in the, in the negative, actually, to flip it on its head. Because if Jesus wasn't born of woman, if Jesus wasn't fully human, actually a significant amount of the prophecies concerning the Messiah actually couldn't be attributed to him. So it was crucial that he was born of a virgin and to Mary. Isaiah 7, verse 14, Christmas prophecy, we all have heard it probably, says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. But the fact that Jesus was born of a woman presents a really Captain Obvious point. And it tells us that Jesus was a human. He was truly human. Jesus was, was born in flesh, as we've been singing about. He was a fully living and breathing human being. He had friends. He had a job. He got hungry. He cried. He got angry. And ultimately, he, he bled and breathed his last and, and died. And the gospel writers, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that record the life of Jesus, make it abundantly clear that, that Jesus really lived, that he really walked this earth. There's no Casper the friendly ghost version of Jesus, or that Jesus was sort of this like really good and decent human, and God sort of looked down and thought, do you know what, that guy, that, that carpenter's son, he could be really good. He could be my, my, my Messiah. No, they're nonsense. We need to run a mile from those ideas and we actually need to be very aware of those ideas because they are just nonsense. But the truth is 
and this is what Christianity, what the church has believed and proclaimed for like 2,000 years, is that that baby in the manger was fully human, but at the same time, fully God. Now, this isn't some sort of like Coke float type thing. It's not like 50-50. It's, it's not like that. And we might just go, whoa, 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 hold on. This doesn't make any sense. How could Jesus be fully God and fully human? 100% of each. How, does, how, does, how can they be two natures but one at the same time? Well, if you want an answer for this, and this is one of the, the big theological questions of the, the times, if you want to take down the correct answer, um, you can on your phone, because I'm going to give it to you, and it's this. I don't know. My puny little mind can't figure it all out. Let me humble you and say it. Neither can yours. But praise God that we can't understand this fully. We can grasp it somewhat, but fully understand this is really, really good news. How is that good news? Well, it's good news because if you and I were able to fully comprehend exactly how Jesus could be fully God and fully human whilst on earth, then actually we would be God. We would actually have the mind of God and just let you know you're not. God, just in case you thought, maybe you thought, you've been listening to a lot of Kanye and you thought maybe I am God, you're not God, just, just confirm that. See, God is, is so far above us and this is just one of the things that we cannot just fully grasp and understand. But praise God that even though we can't fully understand, he has still made himself knowable. That he has made himself known. Jesus was sent by the Father and he was actually born in the human flesh so that we could know God intimately. The third clause is the end of verse four, born under the law. Jesus was born under the law according to Paul. And again, this is such good news for us. This goes to show that the willingness of, of Jesus, the heart that he had to, to take on flesh, Jesus comes to earth and he's subject to the law that he established alongside the Father and Spirit. Now, for, for some of you, you may know that, that I'm, a, I'm a youth worker. And about, I would say about 70% of my job is, is very arduous work, is that I have to play board games and card games. It's, it's very difficult. Do pray for me. Uh, but one of the personal favorites is just the classic for me, and that is Uno. I just love Uno. There's not a group that I've worked with that don't like Uno. It's just, it's, it's a fan's favorite. But there's one huge problem with Uno, and I'm sure everyone's going to relate to this, and it's the rules. It's the rules of Uno. And potentially after this talk is done, I might write Uno a very strongly worded letter. There seems to be a million different variations to the rules of Uno. Let me give you a suggestion. Do you have to say last card before you can win? Do you? Yeah, okay, right. Can you put two cards down at once? No, no. See, there, there are people, there are living, breathing people that believe that you can. And this, I think this is the big one. This is the big one. Can you play a plus two when some absolute cretin throws you under the bus and plays a plus four? Friendships, even maybe marriages have been split over that. It is, it is crucial. These are the questions that true friendships hang on. And maybe you've been to a mate's house and you've been playing the glory that is Uno and one of these areas of tension arise. 
And all of a sudden, the, the mate, the, the house that you're at, goes and plays the classic, oh, house rules, just to suit their circumstance so that they obviously benefit from it. They are cretins, those people. Now, when Jesus comes to earth, he isn't like that mate that makes up all the rules just to suit his circumstance. He comes to earth and he is fully subject to the laws and the commandments. He wasn't playing the different rules. Just like you and me, Jesus lived and in the same broken world and was actually under the law of God. And he was expected, again, like you and me, to keep the law. Though unlike us, Jesus kept God's good commands for our lives. And he actually shows us a beautiful example of what true life looks like. Feels like a millennium ago, but a couple of years ago, we actually looked at the Ten Commandments. And often once we look at the Ten Commandments, we sort of have this sort of like burdening feeling that overwhelms us. It's like, oh, here's God trying to like steal all my joy. There's no crack being a Christian. Oh, all Christianity is about keeping a load of rules. And sometimes we have those thoughts in our head that oh, it's all about doing loads of stuff and like I'm missing out on life. Jesus, when we look at his life, completely squashes those ideas. Those notions are nonsense. The idea that God is trying to ruin your happiness or steal your joy is totally removed once we look at the life of Jesus. Jesus, the most truly living, flourishing human to ever walk this earth, was the one who kept all the rules. He kept all the laws to the T. And we want to follow that. You want to know true life, abundant, flourishing life? It's to follow God to live by his good commands for your life. And this is unsurprisingly good news for you and me. Jesus lives perfectly. He lives a holy, righteous life. He lives a life that you and I actually needed to live, but could not and cannot. And his life, which, which Scott will, will go into much more detail next week, is filled with, with faithful perfection. It's, it's the, the, the example of examples, but it's so much more than just an example of how to live as good as that is, his perfect life all serves to enable him to go to a cross and die. And on the cross of Calvary, what we see is the only ever perfect human being to walk this earth die. And in that moment, Jesus becomes the savior of the world. And you and I need a savior who's perfect. Actually, a deficient savior is no savior at all. Jesus needed to be perfect to die on the cross and so that he could appease the, the, the just wrath of God. Jesus must be without blemish, without defect, not even one, so that he could take the, the whole sin of the world upon himself, so that he could be your substitute on the cross, so that you could have life, that you could have eternal life, even better than that. But why is this all good news? Let's read these verses again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. To redeem those who were helpless. This is the good news. Those who outside, left to their own devices, are lost. That we are helpless. And the fact that Jesus comes born of woman, born under the law, and then goes and dies on a cross, enables 
and allows us to be a part of his, his family. That we are received in. We are adopted. That no longer strangers, no longer aliens, no longer enemies, but now we are children. We are in the family of God. No longer, as Paul would say, no longer slaves, but now heirs alongside Jesus. It's not as if we're just sort of, like once we get to heaven, you know, we'll sort of be the butlers and we'll just sort of be in the back rooms Then we'll just sort of just reside there. No, but so much greater than that, that we will be heirs alongside Jesus in the glory that awaits us in heaven. No longer separated, but brought near to the Father. So much that we have such an intimate relationship that we can cry, Abba, Father. And this is the God of the Bible, guys. Once we read the the Bible, once we come to think about the Christian God, it's not like Zeus on top of a mountain or living up in the clouds, you know, eating Philadelphia. These ideas are just wacky. The God of the Bible is the one that comes near. In fact, he's the one that draws near, that comes down to meet us here on earth so that he could save you from your sin. And as we close tonight, I suppose there's like a million and one different teaching points that we can think about once it comes to the Christmas narrative and we think of Jesus coming to earth. I just want to, one that's sort of been prevalent in my mind is this. It's very simply that God is a promise keeper. Christ's entrance onto the world stage as, as a baby shows us very simply that God is a promise keeping God. God had masterfully set about a plan that at the fullness of time, the exact point in history, Jesus would come. God had promised a Messiah, a rescuer. And he came through with that promise. And our God, because he keeps his word, keeps his promises, is a God that can be fully trusted. I can't even trust myself but I can certainly trust the God of the Bible. He will not fail you. It's actually impossible for him to break his own promises. God can be trusted. And if we want evidence that, we look at the birth of Jesus, amongst many other things. He sent Jesus. And if we need more evidence, Jesus died for you. And if you need even more evidence, Jesus rose for you. And if Jesus can get through death himself, Jesus will be able to get you through death as well. And he will not leave your side. He will implant his spirit within you and you will be his. Now, how does the birth of Christ play a key role within the gospel message? Well, very simply, no birth in what we've thought about. Then there's no perfect life there's no death and there's no resurrection. There's no ascension and there's no coming again. It's the starting block. Now, in a couple of months' time, when everyone gets very festive, we look at nativity scenes. As we gaze upon that manger, what we need to see is a cross looming over that image in our heads. We can't separate them. See, in that manger lay the, the king of the world, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who would sacrifice his life so your sins could be pardoned. So that you, frail, broken you, could enjoy life eternal. 
so that there would be a gospel message, a good news message to believe in and to share with those who desperately need it. And I hope that's your reality. hope that you believe in Jesus. You believe in this good news. If you don't, I urge you, put your faith in Jesus. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants to adopt you and be a part of his family. And I pray that that's all of our reality. And we would give praise to God for it. Amen. And amen.